I'm Ma Baker. Put your hands in the air and give me all your money. And welcome to the sitcom club with myself, Ma Baker, or Moonka, as I should say. Ocho, you've got no idea what I'm talking about, have you? I am Rara Rasputin, lover of the Russian queen. I am a cat who really is gone. Rara Rasputin, Russia's greatest love machine. <laughs> it was a shame how he carried on. You see, I'd like to get a nice snappy opening each time. Have we got any outstanding business from last time? Now, I'm going to throw something in your direction that I haven't mentioned to you yet. You see, we were discussing last time, and by the way, uh, welcome everybody, Sitcom Club. As you know, I'm Mooncat, this is Ocho, and you've probably already seen from uh, the file itself, or your MP3 player, whatever it may be what we're talking about, we'll come to that momentarily. But last time we were here... We were talking about ever-decreasing circles, and we got onto the subject of recasting shows. Uh, we're talking, for example, Anthony Valentine uh, as a, a possible poll. Now, the other day, off-air, I said to you, Christopher Timothy, and, and you seem to be quite okay with that as a prospect. Yeah, and not a huge difference. I don't think Christopher Timothy's quite as naughty as Peter Egan, but it wouldn't be a different show fundamentally. I'm going to give you a name that just popped into my head earlier on, and I think I know what your initial reaction will be, but... Derisive laughter. Well, no, no, no. I'm thinking... I'm, it's going I'm... to be Ken Jones, isn't it? <laughs> no, we'll, we'll come, on to, come to himself in a second. But no, the name I'm going to put to you, it, it's casting slightly, but not too much against type. For Paul, Peter Davison. Yeah, now, I mean, your your instant reaction may be, oh, it would be too nice. Because, yeah, he's a very nice chap, and quite often he plays nice chaps. Are we just going through the cast of all creatures? I don't, I actually, no, I wasn't. I was not actually deliberately For Paul? It. No. A nice cow. <laughs> that's just about to calf. A little bit unconventional, but I, I'm sure we could make it work. Oh, do you know, hang on, that's really spooky you've just said that. Right. Because, honestly, I was not deliberately picking names out of mm. all creatures. <laughs> That'd be his catchphrase. I know we're sort of going cross-gender in the casting, but, you know, mixing it up, mixing it up. Why have I not? Why have I not? You just put a thought into my head. I wasn't deliberately picking names of more creatures great and small, but, okay, let's go with that. You've got Peter Davison as Paul. For the role of Martin, I'm going to switch over to the film version, John Alderton. Very different, I think. Do you think so? I think he I, I think, think Martin will come across as slightly more normal. Just an uptight guy, not quite the same obsessiveness. That whole thing that we were talking about last time about was Martin always like this or did he change fundamentally at some point? I think John Alderton, it would be easier... It would come across more that he was once a fun Martin and you can see what Anne saw in him. You can imagine this was a guy who could bring out the badminton net once upon a time without having to check that it was level. Yes, yeah, I think I think it could work. But yes, as you say, it would be... I mean, with every single one of these instances... If I can stay about. on EDC, as we call it, there's a couple of things. Uh, you, you know, we're talking about the Telegraph, about how you describe Paul's friends as Daily Telegraph people, and we're talking about rather than Guardian people. It just suddenly occurred to me, Martin does consider Les Dawson to be an alternative comedian. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that's just a slight misstep on that maybe... In Martin's world, the Daily Telegraph is a leftist aspirational <laughs> rag. 
There is, of course, an argument to be made that Les Dawson did in some way invent alternative comedy with Cosmo Smallpiece, but that is a discussion for another day. Yes, this this is true. This is true. Something else we need... I don't want to discuss it now, but I just want to put it out there for us to discuss, and, of course, if people want to tweet us. Another thing about ever-decreasing circles we need to discuss is the idea of the hobbyist as a sado, which I think has done damage to our culture. The idea that if you have a shed where you do things, where you build things, there's something a bit wrong with you, really. It's like when Martin was reading that book about lampposts. I've read monographs on test cards. Well, yeah, we, we've all, we've all... And I didn't even understand half of it. Well, we've all, we've all done that. I know, I know exactly what you mean. I think that it would be nice to see... I'm, I'm, I'm saying it would be nice to see a sitcom character who had... Not even uh, an obsessive hobby. I don't. I don't actually think that Martin necessarily has a single obsessive hobby. I think that hobbies and organising are his obsessions. But he doesn't have, actually have an obsessive hobby per se. But it would be nice to see a character who was relatively well adjusted in the sitcom who happened to have quite an obsessive hobby. One example off the top of my head: Andrew Dunn as Tony in Dinner Ladies, a hero of a piece, somewhat Brenda's romantic interest and he's he's a good guy and he's quite often the guy who will see off troublemakers and, and stick up for his team and so on he has an interest in what can only be described as top shelf magazines <laughs> and yet it's referred to fairly frequently and yet it, it's just they've given him that little character trait and he supposedly has copies of them in his in his office and yet he isn't portrayed as some sort of sleazy character or anything like that so yeah that, that's it's a weird sort of trait to give him but yeah i mean i'm, I'm trying to think if, any, if anybody knows of any other examples of sitcom characters who are actually well adjusted and are to some extent the the hero of the piece and yet they've got like a specific little kink they've got maybe a, like a particular interest that sometimes comes to the fore well we're going to come to uh, somebody who does embroidery just before we actually get onto the the matter in hand one thing i wanted to throw in quickly happy birthday to gold which is formerly known as uk gold and uk tv gold which is 21 as we're going out at the moment and just happened to notice on the program guide if you are a gold viewer you will be aware that they have episodes of last of the summer wine that are shown each day two episodes per day and of course they've got an absolute ton of episodes of that but if you listen to this show on the day it goes out they've just within the last few days gone all the way back to the start. So the episodes that are going out at the moment are around about 1976-77, early days of Foggy, Compo and Clegg. If you're only really familiar with Last of Summer Wine as a vast ensemble piece, 21st century style, very much worth having a look at those episodes that are playing on Gold just now, because it's quite a different show in its mid-70s incarnation. And as you say, we are going to go even further back in time, not to the mid-70s, but actually to the 1930s. For our well, I have one last piece of outstanding business. Okay, we'll whip it out and let's have just a look some, at it. Just something I want to mention. We can all cast our minds back to Odd Man Out. And we were talking about uh, Larry Grayson giving an interview saying, I'm not really gay. Obviously, everybody knows that. Have you got round to watching Our Miss Fred yet? I, I, no, not yet. So I to haven't. mention, Our Miss Fred, 1970s film, occupies a very strange place in the 1970s film comedy landscape. Doesn't quite commit to one style or another. But it stars Danny LaRue, the great female impersonator. And the whole point of the film is to get him in different outfits 
doing what he does, which is walking up and down in fancy outfits, smiling. It's quite funny as well. But all the way through, we have to keep cutting back to his character going, I hate doing this. I can't wait to get some trousers on. It's a weird little thing. If we ever have a little movie club, I think it's worth putting on the list. Definitely, we will do sitcom club at the movies at some point, with not just big screen spin-offs of sitcoms, but also, yeah, shows featuring performers from that universe. So, yeah, plenty of uh, plenty of scope in there. Well, you know, now is the perfect time to ask ourselves the question: What is a sitcom? Well, you think? See, I think that is a leading question on your part because I don't think that you're asking that question in an open-ended manner i think that you're you're leading somewhere with this i am yes what would you say is a sitcom i not not i mean alfredo's in pet's not a sitcom is it not to be facetious about it first of all but literally we're talking about a situational comedy so we're talking about we're not talking about sketch shows we're not talking about stand-up we're talking about scripted performance it may be with it could be a single hand, or it could be an ensemble piece, or anything in between. But it's a comedy with a precise situation, set of circumstances, clearly outlined. If we the same pet, I would put closer to the comedy drama bracket. I certainly wouldn't call it a drama because there's a lot of funny moments in it. So yeah, that that's one of those feet in both camps. But you get things that are considered sitcoms that quite often stray into pathos or have moments of drama well yeah and you can have we've just passed halloween um you can have shows say for example league of gentlemen or nighty night which are sitcoms but also go into very dark areas areas that you wouldn't necessarily automatically associate with comedy or sitcoms but once you start on this it becomes very hard to stop when people see that we're the sitcom club they're pretty much going to think that we are going to talk about weekly half hour and in many cases laugh tracked or studio audienced well the word I'm going there is sitcoms but once you start asking yourself what is this a sitcom is that a sitcom like Laurel and Hardy or Charlie Chase definitely a lot of the Hal Roach stuff is sitcom what about a film with characters we've never seen before and we'll never see again and yet what's happening there is situation comedy and what about books people don't really think of I've never really heard anybody sort of say a sitcom book without meaning a book about television comedy. A TV tie-in, as they were often referred to by continuity announcers. As a bridge to this, P.G. Woodhouse and Jeeves. And of course adapted in the, was it the late 80s, early 90s? or Brian Loy, around about, I think, 1990, All done on film, no laugh track. When it was done in the 60s by the BBC, it's done like a sitcom. It looks like All Gas and Gators or something along those lines. So somebody's clearly recognised these books are situation comedy. Whether the world of Worcester works as television is a discussion for a different time. And that brings us to today's sitcom, because it is definitely a sitcom. Dick Turpin is not a sitcom. I'm not going to say (laughs) this again. So we're doing Map and Lucia. We are indeed. Because this is an hour long, there is no studio audience, there is no laugh track. This is based on a series of books, and yet there is nothing in here that is not meant to be laughed at. There are no serious storylines. You might be able to say, oh no, that's a bit sad. It's a bit tragic what's happening here. 
horrible these people are to each other. But everything in here is funny or humorous. There is also the other thing of the difference between comedy and humour, which I'm not really clever enough to pass myself. I know Frank Mio talked about it. I think that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> which We've is, got which a is lot my, of things which in is that my way of Which is my way of saying exactly what you've just said about myself, but uh, in a different way. So let's begin at the beginning, which unfortunately this television series doesn't. I don't know if you're aware. This is all new to you. Yes, Minkat? Well, you see, yes, I'll say cards on the table, nothing else. I was quite happy to discuss this for this week's podcast. I think that I should be honest and say that it's pulling me up from my my usual, what I would say, quite sort of populist area because my shelf is creaking right now with 25-minute laugh track sitcoms, quite a lot of my TV, quite a lot of them only got one series, quite a lot of them involving what you could unfairly term lavatorial humour, the whackers. <laughs> and yet here we are, you've got all highfalutin on me because you've suddenly dragged me into this all new world of Channel 4. And and yes, it's like, like ITV's got this new friend, which it never had before, whereas BBC One, BBC Two, they were always, you know, best buddies and what have you. They could be populist and highbrow at the same time. Here comes Channel 4 to do the same for ITV, and here is uh, a ready-made show for it, which is both, you could say, highbrow, certainly in comparison to Bottle Boys, for example, and yet... <laughs> yes, um, but then again, everything is highbrow compared to Bottle Boys. You know what, I've just realised I something. can get my two-year-old niece to chew with her mouth open. <laughs> <laughs> that would be slightly ahead of Bottle Boys in the sophistication stakes. <laughs> I just I just realised something. Map and Lucia made by London Weekend for Channel 4 at the same time as they were making Bottle Boys for TV. They might have been filmed next door to each other. Indeed. The wonderful world of television. Robin Asquith might have sat at the same canteen table as Nigel Hawthorne and, and discussed what each were doing. And possibly discussed making a guest appearance on the other show, which sadly never happened. So, yes, we're, we're kind of nudging at the boundary of sitcom here. That's fine. Don't anybody worry. Why would you worry that we're completely changing the format of sitcom club? But yes, so... So, yes, this was all new to me. I mean, obviously, I've seen plenty of shows over the years without a laughter track. And I've seen shows which you probably class as things like a, a comedy drama. Like, for example, if we the same pet or a bit of a do or outside edge or whatever it might, whatever it might be. But this was a bit of a departure for myself because here we are with a literary adaptation so here's the problem map and lucia first series is adapted from a book called map and lucia by ef benson it's not actually the first time the characters had appeared before map and lucia there are two lucia books and there is a novel called miss map and it is acknowledged in miss map that they are taking place in the same world i guess part of the problem is for adapting this is you would have to have Two series, if you wanted to do it in two series, or maybe you could compress two books into one series as they did in series two. It would be expensive. You'd have to have a completely separate Rism series, and then a separate Tilling series, and then finally this series where the two clash. So we are kind of joining the story halfway through. So we're going to do our usual over and analysing all the characters, like we did with Ever Decreasing Circles, and it's a lot of fun. Sounded like Tom Fun there. You can be <laughs> Derek, Mooncat. <laughs> 
mean, but we not... are going to have this thing where you're you're probably going to put things forward and I'm going to shoot them down well, because I'm, I'm, of something yes. that happened in an earlier book. Well, that that's absolutely fine. And of course, it's not a problem exclusive to Map and Lucia, of course. I mean, I'm thinking of things like, for example, film adaptation of Bridget Jones or the television adaptation of Adrian Mole, for example. They sometimes have to take... I don't know, maybe this is uh, saying too far in, in this particular instance, but sometimes I have to take liberties with the text and start compressing things or giving lines to other characters or whatever it may be. And the last time I saw Adrian Mole on the television, some 12 years ago, when he was portrayed by Stephen Mangan, that was based on one specific novel within the set and there were some bits and pieces there where complete characters had disappeared and their actions had been given to other people it happens um, here as well well yeah it wouldn't surprise me because in any literary work you've got space you've got elbow room and unfortunately that's just one thing that you don't have i mean it's limited in a film for one thing and certainly it's limited in a television program which is going to be be 24 minutes or 48 minutes or whatever it may be it has to fit into a nice neat slot so it's not surprising that you would get things being curtailed or dropped or rearranged or whatever it may be and sometimes that can infuriate the purists and i don't know where you stand on it um well you're in luck because you're not going to be corrected too much because it's been a while since i read the books and I have a pretty poor memory. <laughs> and we just didn't have time for me to read all the books again before we were supposed to get this edition out. I think it'd be fair to assume, as we will do, that if I was to pop Map and Lucia into the, the big old newsbank search engine right now, we'd almost certainly find at least one letter from Appalled of Eastbourne, or whatever it may be, saying, the new uh, Channel 4 series is delightful, and so on and so on. However, why have they taken such liberties with the text and started uh, arsing around uh, with all this and putting it out of sequence and so on and so on and so on? You're always going to get that, I suppose, with literary lovers, or lovers of Yeah, but then you get a case like BBC's Father Brown, where, in some cases, they've just kept the title of the story and trashed everything else. <laughs> like, obviously, you know, we really like this character, but not enough to actually adapt the stories. They're not good enough. <laughs> well, thankfully, I take the Lee Dixon approach when it comes to books. I don't understand books. I wouldn't even know where to get one. <laughs> so, yeah, no complaints well, for myself. I'll mention uh, the, fir the first I ever saw of these characters was on the TV series. And I read the books afterwards. My wife read the books first and then came to the TV series. And as far as she's concerned, they stand up very well as performances, as adaptations. Series two has the problem of being two books compressed into one and one character fatally miscast. You haven't told me who you're talking about yet because you, you did mention that to me the other day that you had a feeling about that. Shall we set the We've scene? We've got to set the scene, yes. Yeah. Do you want yeah. to set the scene and I'll chip in? or? Okay, yes. You okay, are always well, the chair of uh, Sitcom Club. Well, yes and no. I mean, I'm quite happy in this case to be more of an observer. I sat there with index finger and thumb pressed against chin. Do you know what? I actually, as I said that just now, I just did the gesture, and then I had to pull my hand away to just check its index finger and thumb, isn't it? Yes, it is. And then put them back. So, yes. Okay. So, we have Mrs. Lucas, who is more commonly referred to as Lucia, and she has moved to this little English town called Tilling, and she is a would-be socialite. Is that fair? Is that a fair description? Of? She's actually reached as high as she can. Where she is? Arguably... She's reached as high as she can. She's from a town called Rizm, and she's generally the centre of social life and cultural life in Rizm. Or she was until her husband died. 
and we begin with her just beginning to come out of her seclusion. Again, it's telling that something that could be dealt with quite dramatically has to happen between books. We can't actually have her dealing with full-blown bereavement. That wouldn't be funny. So Philip Lucas, he is ill in one book, but the, the death just off page. We are joining this nine months after she's been widowed. And this is a point at which she's just starting to re-engage with social life again. And of course, one person who is uh, quite active in that process is her friend, Georgie Pilsen. Of course, I should should have mentioned uh, Lucia, of course, is played by Geraldine McEwen, and Georgie is played by Nigel Hawthorne. And you said to me before we started preparation for this, that he isn't like Sir Humphrey. And he really you isn't, is he? You Sir Humphrey. <laughs> yes, that is a good way of putting it. I wasn't looking at him thinking, oh, George would be a terrible head of the civil service. I mean, I mean, the whole country would just grind to standstill if he was in charge. No, I wasn't thinking that at all. So, as you say, Lucia has reached a, a sort of a, a plateau as far as her social activities there. Episode Besides, one is in the strange thing that it's mainly Rism. They're making their plans to have a holiday in Tilling as platonic life partners. And so that introduces to the Tilling cast, but then we go back to Rism and we have this thing where she scores a victory over her rival, Daisy Quantock. It didn't really come across to me until I just started to discuss it now. It does show you rising as high as she can in Rism, and she needs a challenge. And as luck would have it, she's just going to be spending a bit of time in another town. Well, it's when the, well, I'm saying the couple, but they're not a couple, of course, visit Tilling, they happen upon Elizabeth Mapp. I suppose that you would say that she is effectively Tilling's Lucia in as much as she is the principal organiser of the social events and so on. She's the head of the social calendar. I've noticed actually, hang on a second, we're discussing people being at the head of the social calendar of the year and being involved in organising each and every thing. We've just done this. We've just done this with Martin. That's why we had to do them one after the other. <laughs> so Lucia falls for telling she likes it. She thinks that this is somewhere where she can sort of not reinvent herself. That's not the right expression, but she can effectively live again. She can she can enjoy the whole process again of networking and, and, and meeting all these new people and getting to the top of the social hierarchy, I suppose you could say. And of course, then she is something of a threat to uh, Miss Mapp, who's previously been quite comfortable in that position. Let's start looking at the characters and their, mo- well, I was character- their motivations. Pretty much everybody's motivation is to be the centre of attention. There's really only one person in Tilling who isn't interested in that, and that's Mr. Wise. All the other characters behave a little bit better around Mr. Wise. Well, I was going to say, if I can just nominate right away, I'm going to nominate my my favourite character that I've seen in this. And I wouldn't say from what I've seen of him, and I haven't seen all the episodes, but from what I've seen of him, he doesn't seem to me to be too concerned with social climbing. He's more concerned... He does have one thing. He does let it be known in an earlier book that he is related to the Wises of Whitchurch. This apparently buys him some social standing, which is beyond me. Oh, no, I wasn't actually speaking about Mr. Wise in this case. Oh, okay. Um, No, I was speaking about the Major, Benji Flint, who, as far as I can tell, his his preoccupation is more the cigar and the brandy and, (laughs) and basically just letting the day pass by. I wouldn't say that he was necessarily 
too concerned with the social climbing and networking himself. I think he's. But as an ex-military man, he's kind of already there. Yeah, yeah, indeed, and he's also he appears to be a bit more concerned with what time the bar opens and also when it closes, and and so on. But I found him the character that I was sort of gravitating towards in terms of his performance, which which is um, played by Dennis Lill. And I should also, of course, have said I I um, see Dennis Lill in things more recently, and I always expect him to be older than he is. Because he looks so shocking in this. They're giving him the gin blossoms. <laughs> my, my, my apologies, by the way. I, I'd overlooked to mention that Miss Map is, of course, played by Prunel Scales. So we've got our principal trio in the programme in terms of headline names. Geraldine McEwen, Prunel Scales, Nigel Hawthorne. I've mentioned Dennis Lill there, plays Benji, the, the major. And there are quite a few other names. If I, if I throw a few names to you, and you can be a sort of capsule definition of them. Reverend Bartlett. Why isn't he one of your fellow countrymen? Well, I understand that he <laughs> is and he isn't. <laughs> because apparently he is from Birmingham and yet he speaks in some strange mixture of a variety of Scottish dialects. Yeah, um, he's a poser. Well, everybody's a poser. His particular pose is he likes the idea of being Scottish. A mustawa. <laughs> and addresses all the women by uh, mistress. Mistress Map, Mistress Lucas. Not a bad person. His wife is not in this, though. Mrs. Bartlett has been a victim of editing. She's not quite in the bear pit of the backbiting, as I recall it. And if any expert on Benson has somehow chanced upon this podcast, I apologise right now. This is going to be a fairly frothy discussion. I'm going to get things wrong. Welcome to the sitcom club way of doing things. <laughs> but he's generally an okay soul. But you do know that things are bad when he starts speaking with an English accent, which happens a couple of times in both series. Yes, indeed. I just, I just saw him. Uh, suddenly... He also decides to be Irish at one point. <laughs> I think it's well, series I, I, two. I, I think I, he drifts back. He doesn't appear to have too much in the way of continuity when it comes to his Scottish expressions. So, for example, quite often he will use... He, he doesn't really engage in things like broad Glaswegian, but most of his expressions are soft-spoken Scottish, I suppose what you'd say I have as an accent, for example, but you never hear me use a word like Ken. That's Northeastern, that's that's Aberdonian, Dundonian, and so on. You, you don't tend to get that with people from the Central Belt, and yet he'll just sort of throw in things like that. But I think he's probably just been sort of picking up bits and pieces that he's heard occasionally on the wireless or uh, expressions that he's seen in print. Uh, yeah, he's a benign version twist. of what is happening in Tilling. He's a phony, he's a poser. Nobody's really being harmed. Yes. There aren't any Scottish people who find this incredibly racist. <laughs> okay, so Quaint, as she's called, Quaint Irene Coles. She is the pet bohemian. She's an artist. She draws fairly brutal modern pictures. Not in a non-representationalist, but, you know, naked people and big daubs of paint on the canvas. It is representational art but she's probably heard of surrealism. And again, there's that possibility that she she couldn't make it in a real bohemian enclave. They'd cheer up and spit her out in Soho. Yeah, so she can be the town's bohemian, uh, whereas, as you see, yeah, she wouldn't necessarily... She, she can be the, the big fish in the small pond, but she wouldn't necessarily want to be at the cutting edge of the uh, the art world. So um, she can distinguish herself by being outside all of this and by being vulgar as well, which we see a few times. 
And by possibly pretending to be a lesbian, but then again, maybe not. She does have a massive crush on Lutia. Uh, well, yes, indeed. I was going to I was going to ask you about that because she takes one particular piece of news quite badly uh, in series two. It's probably worth mentioning at this point. Well, I was going to say it's probably worth mentioning at this point. It's believed that E.F. Benson was gay. Frankly, anybody of a certain age, certainly any writer of a certain age, it seems like they were probably gay. I was watching a documentary about M.R. James, and it was like he was probably gay. There's no evidence for it, but he was probably gay. <laughs> so, but as, as as I understand it, E.F. Benson was gay. As far as I know, all of his siblings were as well. It's something to not shy away from too much. There, There is this problem now. You, you do tend to get that stuff being jammed in where it wasn't originally. God, I'm sounding like I'm complaining about political correctness. I'm complaining <laughs> about this horrible veneer of fake modernity added to things. If it's there, bring it out a little bit, yes. If it ain't there, you've got to be really clever and sure of what you're doing. As a friend of mine who was complaining about the coincidentally Geraldine McHugh and Miss Marples so I say every week week after week there's a gay subtext that isn't in the book but I think we can give ourselves a little bit of license here so that, that's yes. Quint Irene yeah. yeah quick tangent on this this topic you rang my lord ah yes now, now I remember somebody complaining about that saying that they'd worked on a previous David Croft show suggested a lesbian character and been shut down and then later on not involved in Yurang Lord saw whatever she's called. They nicked my idea. As I remember it, because I saw Yurang Lord at the time, I don't really remember that either feeling as if it had been crowbarred in. Neither do I remember... Well, it. that's okay, because they're building it from scratch, and it's also interesting that she's probably the nicest person in it. I also don't remember it being particularly controversial or anything like that, which is nice. Um, I don't remember it getting uh, headlines or anything like that at all. Yeah, it, it just it was almost as if yeah, there happens to be a lesbian character in the piece. That's just uh, initially it seems to be played it? a little bit for way up. My friend Penelope, nudge nudge. But after a while, it just everybody just settles down, and some people again deal with it, as the T-shirt says. Also, you rang the Lord, fifty minutes long, and yet does have an audience. But also, you'd probably say that it's it's closer to comedy drama than straightforward sitcom. Yes, well, it's, come back it's, to that. Upstairs, downstairs, comedy-fied. But. Yes. Okay, Godiva. Godiva plays though. She's in a strange position, because in some ways she is Elizabeth Mapp's Georgie. She's the co-conspirator. But in other ways she is Elizabeth Mapp's Daisy Quantock. Daisy Quantock is back in Rhythm. That occasionally things get really quite nasty between Mapp and Diver. Which is, she's called Diver. Her name is Godiva. So whoever it was, a BBC radio who adapted one of the books and had her referred to as Diva throughout. That's how you do it, schmucks. <laughs> On the one hand, I guess Diva's got a certain loyalty to Tilling and this Rizomite coming in. At the same time, Map's a pretty awful person, as we'll <laughs> find out later. So there's that loyalty's not entirely there, so she, she can kind of change her loyalty back and forth. She'll complain about Lucia, she'll complain about Map. And maybe in another universe she could have been the queen of Tilling. But I don't think that's quite there. It's not there's not a bitterness there. I don't entirely get a sense that she was ever serious about taking things over. 
it's it's just that she's between two egos. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned previously, Mister and Mrs. Wise. Mister Wise is he has his status. He has a fantastic wardrobe. I'm not mentioning names here, am I? Well, I, I need to mention Jeffrey Turter as Mr. Wise, yeah. just because of those forgetting who somebody is. Uh, Jeffrey Turter is in, is it Series 3 or Series 4 of Callan? And I managed to get several episodes in without realising who he was. And there was just this episode of Callan where he said something and he gave a little bow and, it's Mr. Wise! <laughs> I've been watching him all this time, I haven't realised he's Mr. Wise. His performance was so different, but as soon as he bowed... I knew. Yeah, Mr. Wise is very strange. He just kind of floats along. He's not really involved in the politics or the backbiting. Mrs. Wise also has her own status. She has the MBE and she has a Rolls Royce. She's raised a lot of money for the local hospital. This is pre-NHS days. There is something, uh, Marion Methy, many people probably know as uh, She Must Be Obeyed in Rumpole, this is where my memory fails me. I really have to go back and find this out. But in the performance that Marion Matthew gives, there is this sense that she was not born into this status. She has that Trey Wayne way of talking that indicates she's been a bit common and is trying to sound posh, and it doesn't always come off. This is one of those weird things that you kind of have to be British to know about. As a when saw a friend discussing a Kinks album, and he's discussing a line in the song Shangri-La. All the houses in the street have got a name. They said, that actually tells you something. In Britain, somebody whose house has a name, and everybody's house has a name in Mappaluccia, it tells you something about their pretensions. Yes. Yeah. Brooksmead, in ever-decreasing mm-hmm. circles. Mm-hmm. Well, the, yeah. the first time you know Paul's a wrong, and it's because he burns his sign. <laughs> yes. We also have the help as well. Uh, we've got uh, Now, this now. is really interesting. It's something to come to. Because we're talking about something that in some ways is so subtle... We've said it's sitcom, that everything in this is supposed to be humorous. But it's not ah, comedy with actual jokes a lot of the time. Sometimes the entire thrust of a scene will be, oh, this person's fishing for a compliment, isn't that funny? But the performances are beyond Nelly. Yes. The performances are so broad. Everybody is throwing it to the back of the gods except for the servants. All the working class characters are completely naturalistic. It's a really nice effect. They're not completely unaffected by the backbiting and they do have their own loyalties, but it does give you something that kind of makes the posh people's world look a bit ridiculous. They have their conversations between each other as well, so quite often they are one step ahead, which perhaps Mapalachia haven't quite spotted. So that sometimes gives them the chance to plot how they're going to react to things. And we have but, some grand sitcom actors. Ken Kitson, of course, did a lot of time in Last of the Summer Wine. And, oh, look, <laughs> as Grosvenor, Geraldine, Hilda, Newman. <laughs> yes, indeed. And again, it's another one of those, like, just a great way of looking at the difference between the same actor in two different things. There's no Hilda in Grosvenor. It's fair, she's playing it down. No. There's a couple of other names I want to just ask you about, but am I missing out any principal characters there? Oh, that's all the important ones. Okay. A couple of people I, I want like to ask we, you I like how we lumped all the help in together. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, I think that that would be what Lucia would want, for example. That's, that's how <laughs> she would do it herself. But a couple of names I wanted to ask you about in episodes I've not seen myself. I noticed that Irene Handel 
is in one episode as Poppy, Duchess of Sheffield. Yes. And again, by virtue of being Irene Handel, you do get this slight sense of her not having been born into it. But I'm again, I'm not sure of my ground there. But yes, that's just a one-off, just in the last episode. We have uh, Anna Quill as Olga Bracely in one episode. Yes. Oh dear. My wife and I both agree that they completely botch Olga Bracely. Uh, Olga Bracely is in the first book, Queen Lucia, and she is the real thing. She is what Lucia wants to be, but can't be bothered putting the work into being. She is a somebody. She's an opera singer. She's well-connected. She's well-liked. And when she finally turns up in the TV series, she comes across as brash and broad and a bit wearing, a bit tiring and wrong. Maybe if we do a proper book club instead of a television book club, there might be more to talk about it because I don't want to spend too much time talking about things we don't see in the TV series, but they don't get Olga right for my money. Olga would be should be another one whose performance is on the same level as The Help. Just very natural. So that's the characters as I know them. What did you formulate? Theories, opinions, beliefs about the characters. I mentioned previously that Major Benji I was a character that I was so drawn to. I liked, I liked the fact that he was in the thick of it, but still somewhat detached. Lucia's... He did used to have a good friend in Tilling, but he departs in in the book Miss Map, so we we don't get to see Captain Puffin. Oh, I see. Right. Okay. Lucia herself, whilst it's nice that she is sort of rediscovering herself after being widowed, she is somebody who I think. How can I put this? Um, she's a bad person. Yeah, she's a bad person. Um, well, again, I liked. I wanted to do this after ever decreasing circles. Lucia is as bad as Martin, and Map is worse. Yes, I mean Lucia is certainly conniving and quite ruthless, with always a smile on her face. While she might be stabbing you in the back or stabbing you in the front, depending on the situation, I suppose one difference between herself and Paul, for example, would be that Lucia's sort of little series of victories will have a sort of snowball effect because she will, for example, get herself onto this particular committee and in achieving that aim, she will then want to use that as a stepping stone to something else. At the same time, the thing that she's got her eye on next, they themselves might feel that they would benefit from having Lucia because she's also connected to this group or that group and so on and so on. So I think that she is probably likely to get a fair number of invitations to things by people who can't necessarily abide her personally but think that she could still be useful. So in a way, a mutually beneficial arrangement to everybody concerned. And the principal person, of course, who's going to lose out will be Map because she suddenly got this threat. If I had to be in the same room with one of them for any extended period of time, then I would choose to be in the company of Map, because I think that as far as her outward personality is concerned, I think she's a little bit friendlier. Um, really? I don't necessarily think... A, 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 a little bit. I a think little Map's bit. brutal. Really brutal. And much worse. She's, Do you think so? She's insulting in a way that Lucia might slightly undercut. Maybe can be a little bit arch, a little bit of a backhanded compliment here and there but map is just right up to your face and diss you in a way that can you know draw blood yeah but i think this is something to do with possibly my own personality as well is that i much prefer people who are 
straight with me than people who would say one thing to my face and then say something else behind my back. So I would rather that if somebody was plotting against me in whatever the circumstances, I'd rather they just said it. The thing with Lucia is if you have an idea of the rules to the game, you can just about play the game with Lucia, whereas Map would just cheat. Map strikes me as the kind of person who would knock a chess table over if the game was going wrong. Well, I did, I did say that if I had to choose to be in the company of her, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't say necessarily I wanted to do business with her. So on a sort of veneer, in terms of just making polite conversation, I think what would rub me up the wrong way about Lucia is the fact that she's always going to turn the conversation back to herself and what she's done and her achievements and so on. And I think that she would always try and best something that you've just said. Whereas I think that Matt, perhaps, maybe I'm wrong, but I think she'd be a little bit less likely to do that. And if she was going to come out and just slate me, then she would just do it. I'd rather that was the case than than have someone sort of talking at the side of the mouth. But, now we're talking about how horrible these people are, but they don't really have any innocent victims. Nobody nice goes to the wall because of what these people do. Well, see, the, the, well, that's the thing, because that's the point at which it would then cease to be a comedy. That's when it would then become a drama. If you have innocent victims, then who, who are your sympathy supposed to be with? I mentioned to you the other day, and I think I actually sent you... Oh, yes, of course I did. I sent you a couple of episodes of it, a brief Adam Faith sitcom called The House That Jack Built. <laughs> and your response to that was simply, they're all horrible. And... Yes, they are, apart from Richard Lumsden's character, who's supposed to be sort of our guy in, in the thick of it. But yes, that, that's part of the reason that they can all behave so cruelly to each other, because in a way they all sort of deserve it. Nobody's any better than anybody else. Whereas, yeah, if, you, if you've got either a regular character or just an incidental character who seems to be the victim, yeah, you're not going to get a lot of laughs out of that. You need to give people a reason to actually But the thing somebody. is, that I don't think there are even any innocent characters who get even mildly frustrated but win through in the end there are no nice people any nice person in tilling is in service and even then probably some of them are bad ones. this is one of those situations whereby it's quite a frequent trait of sitcoms that the people who make you laugh the most are the people that you would least like to be in a room with and somebody for example say something like captain mannering for example you, and you know, he, he's, a, he's a funny character, but you, you'd really find him quite insufferable with his pomposity if you had to, to work with him for any extended period of time. So, yes, but I there think... There is yeah, no corresponding Godfrey or Pike in this way. Oh, just leave him alone. And so that, in a way, allows Map and Lucia to behave as outrageously as they do, because as long as it's all in that particular bubble... If it's all uh, in that world with its own rules, and you're sort of thinking, well, this person's done badly at this situation. However, if it was themselves in the same situation, and they'd had the chance, they would have turned the tables as well. You know, actually, I, I want to come back to this about Matt being a much worse person. We already start with the thing that she has rented out her house to Lucia for the holidays and has agreed to rent somebody else's house for herself to stay in. But... Her agreement with Lucia is that the garden produce goes to Map. Lucia does not eat what's in the garden. The gardener spends most of his time tending to the garden produce, but she has an agreement with where she's staying that she gets the garden produce there, yeah? That's just wrong, and of course it blows up in her face. Lucia finds a way of dropping this information. Does she not also have an arrangement with many of the other 
members of the community whereby she's going to let her place and then somebody else will let this and somebody else will let that and the whole it's all going to go down the line in terms of how much they're getting and then it's discovered that actually she's getting more from the chia than she's previously announced to everybody else in the chain of command would it be fair to say that perhaps Nachia is a little more skilled at being able to get her underhand way in a, a less sort of overt manner, whereas as sometimes Map is a bit more... There is that, but I don't see Lucia pulling the fruit and veg trick with anybody. Not in such an underhand manner. I can see Lucia maybe persuading somebody, maybe massaging their free will to get something, but not just cheating somebody in that fairly blatant fashion. So would it be fair to say then that Lucia is somebody who perhaps uses more the silver tongue and the networking to get what she wants, whereas Map is a, a bit more sort of um, headstrong. Well, let's and... face it, at the end, Map resorts to burglary. <laughs> well, yes, it is difficult. I could envisage a situation which uh, Lucia perhaps had induced somebody, maybe Georgie, maybe not, uh, in terms of being able to purloin uh, an item, whereas, yeah, Map would be the type of person to just go in there and do it herself. Yeah, they both are determined to get their own way. They just have different... Yeah, they've got different characters, they've got different traits, and they've got different ways of doing things. Now, of course, probably, aside from Mr. Wise, Georgie's interesting, because Georgie's actually quite sweet. Yes. I find Georgie quite a difficult character to sort of categorise, which is nice, because he doesn't quite fit into a... certainly doesn't fit into a sitcom-shaped box as far as his character is concerned uh, what's the best way do you think to describe his manner i wouldn't say feminine i don't think that's that's dainty. Quite, yeah yes dainty that's nice he's quite sweet natured and he i think he cares quite a bit for the little things in life he cares about the aesthetic things and just general sort of niceties and, uh, and what have you so yes he's a nice character he's not necessarily somebody who's, who's terribly capable i suppose you would say but then being alongside lucia he doesn't really need to be but that is the thing, he does like hanging around with Lucia for the drama. And there is an interesting bit, if anybody you know doesn't want to watch this show, they're just happy to listen to us talking about it. Georgie has a very sort of quiet voice, a very slight nervousness, a bit sort of like a piglet. But when he's talking with Lucia about how far Matt's pushing it, this problem, that problem, the fruit and veg... His voice drops when he asks Lucia, so is it war? And he's looking forward to a scrap. Not, there's a slight element of let's you and her fight. Yes, yeah, he, he wants to sort of live vicariously through her. He doesn't want to doesn't want to get involved in a scrap himself. But yes, he likes the, the excitement and he likes to be there when the activity is happening. But I think he'd be terrified if he was suddenly right in the thick of himself. Well, part of Georgie's problem is that he has these two sisters who are rather overbearing. Again, we never see them. They're from an earlier book. So you get the feeling that he grew up around these two boisterous tomboys, and he also has this fear of intimacy. Nobody in this really has sex. Everybody is really sexless. Somebody did write a book about Major Benji a few years ago, and there's just sex everywhere, and it's really jarring. Now, everybody in this is frigid, and, well... Do we just say spoiler alert and just blow some of the big facts about I think, this? Yeah, I think that it it's necessary for the exposition to 
to discuss what happens in the the adaptation. So yes, so yeah, I think if you've listened this far and you've not seen the show and you're intrigued to see the show, probably best to pause the podcast at this point, see the show, then maybe come back. Otherwise, carry on listening. So, series two, Georgie and Lucia get married. And Lucia has a little talk with him about how they're going to be in separate bedrooms with all that that entails. Yes. And he's delighted. Yes, he is. He he's, is. Oh. It's also worth mentioning that the aforementioned Olga Bracely is really the love of Georgie's life. And he is quite glad. He sort of brushes her off at one point. Not not in a romantic sense, because she's married. But he kind of mentions that he doesn't want to spend too much time around her because he adores her. And he's rather glad when when he sees her again that he's married, because it means there's no risk of entanglement. Yes. It does seem that marriage is a state and a situation which greatly appeals to him as far as it goes. But as you say, he certainly doesn't want to get involved in all that business. And that just isn't on his radar at all. But he he likes the the social benefits that it brings. He likes uh, having Lucia on his arm and so on. Well, he's generally content just to hang out with Lucia. And when we first meet him, Lucia was still married. When he finally does pop the question in the book, apparently, this is the thing, you do lose a lot of characters' thoughts by having the tea. It's, it's partially just because he doesn't like living alone anymore. It was strange, actually, that, that particular scene where he does effectively propose to her. And then they sort of realise after they've had this lengthy conversation, which is all about practicalities, that it suddenly occurs to them then, oh, we appear to be engaged. But there was nothing... It wasn't. I wouldn't say it was unromantic. Uh, I wouldn't say it was like a transaction. But nevertheless, it wasn't as he didn't get down on bended knee and and, and present a, a ring or anything like that. It was simply he put forward the suggestion and she accepted, and, and there it was. And yet, it's very weird in the way they behave around each other. They have this baby talk that they keep lapsing into, and the way it's acted, it's sometimes Geraldine McEwen just oozes all over whoever she's talking to. And so, you know, when they're playing the piano together, and it's something that Major Benji mentions in episode one, and I can't remember if it's in the book, but he's under the impression, and so a few other people, that they're at it like mink. Well, from the very first time that they go to Tilling, they are presumed to be a couple. Yes. And the way they behave around each other, when we see them, you know, just in a room together, you'd be forgiven for thinking that there was something going on. So it's very strange then when we get this whole thing that they're both delighted to be in a marriage that's going to be completely sexless. I know you don't want to talk too much about what's only in the books as opposed to what's in the the adaptation, but just as a a matter of interest, what is, if anything, what is George's relationship with Lucia whilst she's in her first marriage? He likes hanging around her for the drama. He likes seeing what she's going to do next. And how does her husband at the time take to George's presence? Philip Lucas is a very vague figure. Even down to, I was discussing it with my wife, so I was saying, if I tried to cast... Let's pretend that London Weekend decided to take the bull by the horns and start at book one. And I was thinking, who would you cast as Philip Lucas? And I couldn't decide, because I don't entirely know what his relationship to all of the posing and pretending and pretension that surrounds Lucia is. We do know that he wrote a book of poetry that is on sale in Rhythm. A very fine edition, I think, is wrapped in ribbon. But I couldn't quite imagine if he was completely devoted to this phony cultural life, this faux Elizabethanism, 
or if he just kind of went along with it. I did ask my wife the other day, I said, look, right, you know, because she remembers the books. She's read the books more often than I have. I said, right, we, we, basically I'm down to two candidates. Is he Peter Bowles or is he Anton Rogers? <laughs> and she said, Anton Rogers. So, okay, so there is a certain extent that he's, as long as, as, long as little Eddie's happy, he's happy. Georgie's not a threat. That's exactly what I was going to say just now, without wanting to be insulting towards George's character. He's yeah, one of the girls. Exactly, yeah. He would never he would never be perceived as a threat to the, the marriage. So I suppose that Mr. Lucas would have been actually quite happy that, that Georgie was there to, to keep uh, Lucia company when he wasn't. Yes. So in the course, just to take a couple of steps back to earlier episodes of Series 1, for example. Tell me a bit more about this business with the vegetables. Is this an example of Map's hands-on ruthlessness that you wouldn't necessarily get uh, with Lucia, that perhaps she would be a bit more careful and cautious uh, with her dealings? I can't see Lucia even doing that. I don't think she's interested in getting everything. She wants to be the centre of attention. She wants to be seen as very sophisticated, very cultured. And there is some stuff in series two where she wants to be seen as a canny financial brain. But I don't think she's necessarily quite so greedy for absolutely everything she can get in the same way that Map is. And Map is, you know, will sh- shove you aside. I think Lucia, if she, there are certain things where she'd just move on. Just choose a battle she can win. Right. I've got, now I've got to ask again, I've got to ask a question about the, the adaptation. Is Map the way that she is because she's been like that for as long as the the story has been told, or are her actions in some way prompted by the arrival of Lucia? Has Lucia's arrival made Map a worse person? Not by much. It's not like the arrival of Lucia was Map's downfall, and she was on an even keel before that, and now she was always a bit thud and blunder. There's a very strange scene in the book, Miss Map, where it just suddenly goes to the garden. It discusses a wasp killing a butterfly. It's like a bit of associative montage. And Map is one of life's wasps. Later on in series one, we've got this situation where Map is on the committee for the art exhibition. This is very. This is a slightly difficult show to discuss because it's so dense. Even accounting for fifty-minute episodes, so much happens in an episode, and it's constant little little wars and little victories. There isn't that much of an arc to it as well. It's just the arc of the rise of Lucia. Now, another example of the way in which the two ladies approach problems differently comes in episode three, The Italian Connection. Lucia and Georgie have both submitted entries to the local art exhibition. Now, Map is on the judging committee and she spots these and intercepts them and rejects them. Now, Lucia's response to this is not to kick up a public fuss and to stamp her heels and scream and shout. Rather, she arranges to put their entries on public display to attract the attention of the locals and therefore garner support for them being entered into the competition. And this sort of illustrates their different approaches to things, whereas Map is more hands-on, sees a problem, stamps it out, dealt with. Lucia, I think, is rather more cerebral. She plots, uh, she works out the turn of events based upon each action uh, and the domino effect that it will have. Yes, there is that. But I don't think there's quite the same viciousness. Well, in, in Queen Lucia, Lucia is kind of 
taken down a peg or two by the presence of Olga Bracely, but there isn't any sense that it's like, right, I'm going to get back at you. If somebody who's not Lucia gets some status, it's more Lucia's nature to then go and cozy next to that person and say, oh, I always knew you could do it. Yes, yes, very good, very dear friends. Whereas Meps, it's mine! Give it back! <laughs> are there any situations, are there, in the adaptation or in the novels themselves when Map and Lucia find themselves, even if they don't want to have to, working together for a couple Well, this... <laughs> let's get to the big scene. Well, yeah, I was going to ask this you This is a this. really strange... <laughs> <laughs> it's a really interesting situation because it shows you how unimportant they are, in a way. As part of this whole Mishagos around social status, and it comes down to a lobster recipe that Lucia will not share. So Mep goes round to Lucia's house. Lucia's now moved to a little house near the sea because she's decided to stay in Tilling, so she can't stay in Mep's house any longer. The holidays are over, so she moves to this little place by the beach and map goes round there and breaks into the house to steal the recipe that's just how bad she is it's just <laughs> flat up burglary and there's a big storm the sea floods the house and map and the are carried away on a dining table and that's it everybody think everybody thinks they're dead now this is all within the same first series so we've got like a gap of several months between episode four and five is this in the, in the books was this actually between books or not no this is all part of the the same book when you've got something based on a novel and you've got five 50 minute episodes to do it in you can take things farther it's interesting how life goes on after a while everything settles and then of course you see map's greed drop down a level to major benji I think Georgie behaves way more honourably in the situation than Lucia would. So what happens is the respective houses are then left to the respective, at that point, best friends. And Georgie makes sure that the servants are paid. He's waiting for a legal declaration of death that he hopes never comes before he claims the inheritance he's been left. And he's been left a fortune. He's been left Bill Gates money in 1930s <laughs> terms. Which is probably just as well, because I don't really see Georgie as, for want of a better term, a grafter. Yes, the term is rich idiots with no day jobs. That's <laughs> what all these people are. It's almost kind of a bit difficult to relate to in some ways, because have you ever seen the play An Inspector Calls? Uh, no. It's this whole thing of what you tend not to get in many adaptations. The inspector is actually supposed to be a post-war figure finding himself in 1912 and examining the social hierarchy before the welfare state and Clement Attlee and all that jazz. It's like when um, Georgie's maid Falljam wants to marry Lucia's chauffeur. He gets a bit unpleasant about it. The servants have to ask permission. Yeah, he's got concerns about that from the very moment that he ever sees the two of them together. But the servants actually have to discuss it with their employers. And not in a sense of, you know, by the way, there's a change to our employer-employee relationship, but asking permission from their betters. What was the point I was making? <laughs> we, were <talk> we were talking about Georgie inheriting. So he's really nice about it. He makes sure the servants are paid. <laughs> what to do with the dining table when it washes up on the beach, which is taken as proof that they're dead. Uh, he pays for a monument... 
doesn't quite come out right. <laughs> Even then, I mean, this one's saying everything in this is supposed to be laughed at. And we won't blow that gag, but it is great. Whereas Major Benji, he's in there, right? He's moved into the house. He's drinking the, the cellar. <laughs> and he has a housewarming party. <laughs> I don't think this is supposed to be that long after the events either. Well, it's only it's supposed to be a matter of it's just a few months, isn't it? Yeah, and I'm not that many months, I don't think. Definitely seen as unseemly haste, and again, it just shows he's a bad one too. See, yeah, I don't, I don't consider him a, a decent chap, but I, I find him somebody who's quite entertaining. Partly because he's just so selfish in his own way and is sort of oblivious to how he's perceived uh, by others. And he doesn't like Georgie. No, I there's don't, a few yeah. times of what I think is the implication of, I was going to say misplaced homophobia. I'm wrong there because effeminacy. And homosexuality, that's how it's pronounced, are only sort of fairly recently in our history bonded together. I'm not sure by the 1930s what the situation is, but certainly in the 19th century, an effeminate man is, is, is one who's spending too much time around women. I think that the Major looks at Georgie in the way that you might expect somebody with his military background, and he's looking at this chap and... It's not so much that he's looking down on him, it's just that he doesn't really relate to him, he thinks he's just come from a different universe. He's, I mean, the he's first not... time he really senses this is he offers to buy Georgie a drink and Georgie says, oh, I'll have a gin and French. <laughs> it's, just, it's kind of like a martini, but it's 50-50 proportions. And the look on his face <laughs> at having to buy this, this she-she fancy yeah. drink. Yes. And then later on, when they're doing the Tableau Vivant, good heavens, it's a different world, isn't it? Tableau Vivant, which is just somebody in an outfit on a backdrop standing and you're supposed to be impressed by it. <laughs> Actually, um, have you ever watched Arrested Development? Yes. Yeah. You know this thing about pretending to be in a painting? Yes. That's yeah, a the, real the thing. Event. That yeah. is a real Orange County event, Pageant of the Masters. Oh, smashing, smashing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I must come and see this one day. So anyway, uh, Georgie's dressed up as Bo Bromel, and Major Benji says something about, oh, you look fine as whatever you are. Marie Antoinette, Oscar <laughs> Wilde, which actually I think is maybe a bit of an implication of... And there's another bit, and I can't find... I've, I've checked Urban Dictionary. I always knew the man was a milliner. Uh, I'm not oh, sure about that. Is he, is he saying it a roundabout way, mad as a hatter? Or uh, is no, milliner no, know, some kind no. of gross? No, yeah, I'm not going to say what it is. I'll tell you off air. But yes, it is quite gross. and it's Again, uh, I'm not sure if that's something that's been introduced into the adaptation. Uh, yeah, no, I know, I know what he's... sounds like yeah, an I what, ad-lib. I know, I, know what he's, I know what he's saying there. Oh, I've okay. also heard that expression used in episode of Steptoe and Son, which was then subsequently cut from a gold retransmission. <laughs> Hey. years ago hey. so uh yeah if, if folks if you can work it out for yourself great but i'm not gonna say it yeah the major t- to be fair to him i suppose that it's sort of how you'd expect him to react leaving leaving what he thinks may or may not be george's sexuality to one side it's just that he, he's, he's reacting to him as you'd sort of expect this chap steeped in his military background to react to this quaint rather delicate creature they're both speaking the same language but not and I would think that Georgie would, he's not going to put it in the same way, but he's also going to have a reaction to Benji. I think just fear. <laughs> yeah, they're from different worlds, and they're never really going to be on the same page. But as you might expect... Actually, it just reminded me of a weird bit where, um, 
I can't remember which series it is. Is it series it is? I don't know if Major Benji's talking about one of his conquests or some legendary female uh, in his days in India. He's talking about the pride of Pune. <laughs> he's at a party when he's talking about this, and he's three sheets to the wind. Might be easier just to mention the times he's not drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Mind you, and he says, saying- "I have a picture somewhere," and I think the implication is this picture's a bit. And the padre is, oh, man, man of the cloth, I couldn't. And he walks off. And Georgie just looks frightened rabbit. <laughs> but then it gets, Mr. Wise goes, I wouldn't mind seeing. <laughs> and Georgie spits his picture again. <laughs> just to go back on the subject of Georgie's preferred tipple, the major's not averse to gin as we discover later on, because Queen Irene has summoned a hip flask. Yes. <laughs> tops up his... What, what is it, the, the drinking at the um, the event where the chi is playing the organ? Looks like glass, looks like a glass of milk, but it's not just milk, is it? Cloudy lemonade. Yeah. But she says, no, have a, have a dash of terps with it. And I think at one point he actually thinks it is actually... Yeah, yeah he goes and never drunk terps. <laughs> and he looks a little bit uncertain, but he's probably going to knock it back. <laughs> yes, he probably would have done what but then the when hell? he finds out it's gin, he just grabs the bottle and gets as much as he can in there. Yeah. Now, actually, you know, we've been talking about how sweet Georgie is. When it gets to this point where Lucia has decided she's going to stay in Tilling, and Georgie's looking at going back to Rism, and he does complain about no plots, no competition, but then he tries to steal Lucia's chauffeur. Because he's he's worried about his maid staying in Tilling to be with her fiance, and he he just plots. He just straight up tries to uh, go behind Lucia's back and steal servants. So he's not all that nice. Well, the thing is, okay, different. May, maybe maybe I'm comparing apples and oranges here, so maybe this isn't fair. But despite somebody's sort of overwhelming characteristics, there, there's going to be a point at which they surprise you, as we spoke about previously the episode of Forbidden Quays and Suckles where Howard cracks. And just for that brief half an hour or so, Howard is a different person. Then would it be fair to say that, that sometimes Georgie I suppose you can you argue well. that Georgie's a bit heartbroken. His best friend has decided that Tilling is so much fun that she could do without him. Maybe not. Maybe she actually is confident enough in her own power that she knows that there's no way Georgie would go back without her and that he's going to have to stay in Tilling. So as might well be expected, of course, we have not seen the last of Map and Lucia, uh, despite them disappearing uh, off into the horizon. And indeed, they return. And as, again, you might expect, they're not necessarily just going to brush off their time away. They're going to seek to, want of a better term, exploit the stories that they have to tell. Although they're not necessarily You need to mention the that they ended up on a fishing trawler. Well, yes. An Italian fishing trawler was. <laughs> yes. So, Lucia... Oh, do you know what? we ha- That's something we haven't mentioned. This whole thing that Lucia and Georgie pretend they speak good Italian and they just know a few words. Again, everybody's a phony. So, she claims that uh, they speak a strange Neapolitan dialect. Now, I have to bring in my own life here. Uh, a while ago, working at a radio station and there was some campaign, I don't know if it was national, I don't know if it was just the council, learn another language. So somebody went round Bradford getting recordings of people speaking their first language, but they all had to be vetted so that this person wasn't 
deciding to have a laugh at our expense. So we had somebody working there whose father was Italian, so she spoke fluent Italian herself. So we got somebody speaking Italian, she brings it in, and we just play it to her, and he said, is, is this okay? And she said, it's okay, but he must be from Napoli. So there's some really heavy Neapolitan, I'm having a bit of difficulty with it, and I just fell about laughing. But apparently, <laughs> yes. Even if you are fluent in Italian, the Neapolitans, I guess they must be the Italian Geordies. <laughs> so we're, we're getting towards the end of series one here. And I mean, how, how much in terms of text, in terms of books, how much have we actually compressed in series one? Are we talking about like three or four different volumes between no, no. the cheese stories? Series Mark one and... is one novel. Okay. The novel Map and Lucia. Series two is two, and I think it suffers a bit. They have to sort of have events overlapping, and it's just a shame that, and it, it, you know, it might not have worked. It's just a shame they couldn't do all six, all of them, five sets of fifty minutes. We've kind of dealt with series one. We've had to bumble about because I don't think it's something that would have benefited as going plot point by plot point. It's really about the character interactions, and all you need to know is everybody's trying to score <laughs> off everybody else. So we've got a, a, a sort of a plot twist at the end of series one as well, because that's the point at which Benji proposes to Matt. And then they are as a couple from the beginning of series two. And as you say, series two, is it, is it lacking a little bit in terms of actually having a self-contained story arc? Because even though it's taken us down some sort of windy roads, series one introduces us to the characters and series two ends with them in some way having reached an end of chapter point, so to speak. The way it's done, series one ended with Map getting one over on Lucia, but Lucia not entirely conceding. And it kind of ended with this Cold War. Series two ends with Lucia triumphant. It really ends with Lucia is now Queen of Tilling. And, you know, I always sort of got that impression... Pretty much from the outset. I don't know why, just sort of got the impression. Perhaps it was that first episode and the fact that it concentrated so much on Lucia and just her character before she's even made the move to Tilling. I just sort of got the impression that it is, ultimately, is going to end up with herself in the ascendancy. Not necessarily with, with Map completely uh, on the sidelines, but it seems that her star is rising throughout, by and large, whereas Maps is falling. If we were a few years earlier, then it would have been the story of Map achieving everything that she's been sort of seeking in the social scene and being on top of the well, tree. Well, if, if you're interested, you know, she does start out in her own book, Miss Map, and we do see Lucia falling in a couple of places in her books, her two books, before the big team up, uh, particularly when she, she moves to London for a while, and there's no way she's going to be Queen of London. I'm going to throw... A suggestion out here, which I don't think is being seriously discussed, but it seems to be the uh, the hot topic at the present time. Is there scope for, even if it's just a one-off, is there scope for a one-off revival of Map Well, there have been books written after the Benson series. I mean E.F. Benson, not Robert Guillaume as, <laughs> as a bottler. <laughs> Uh, there are two books written in the 80s, Lucia in Wartime and Lucia Triumphant. There is also a book called Major Benji, which I bought for my wife, and I'm not even sure we still have it. 
<laughs> I think it may have been thrown out the window. I also read, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page. Don't be under the impression that I'm doing anything clever. It says here there's a 2012 book called Lucia on Holiday. But I'm going to say no. First, are we, are we talking about doing this still open all hours style and getting all the surviving cast members? Exactly, yes. So, I mean, obviously we wouldn't, unfortunately, we wouldn't have Georgie. Um, exactly. You can't put Lucia through it again. Mm. And unless it was done, unless it was done in some sort of convoluted fashion where he just, just happens not to be screen. there, He's, he becomes Elizabeth Mannering, or Pauline Yates in the last edition of Keep It in the Family. Uh, she's oh, she's gone to Australia. Okay, no, but you could you could have a situation whereby maybe if it was a self-contained story, perhaps if Map and Lucia were somewhere out of sorts, then you could sort of excuse George's absence. Example. I guess you would have to go on the Are You Being Served route and send them somewhere else. Send them on holiday. The only reason I'm saying that is it's been 30 years since the TV series. The hell, What the hell are Map and Lucia going to be like in the 1960s? The world's too different. It's interesting that there is a book called Lucia in wartime. I've not been able to bring myself to read it. But the Second World War is where the British class structure begins to soften and bend and change. It hasn't gone away entirely. It's 2013 and the Prime Minister went to Eton, but it's definitely not the same, not quite as solid and secure as it is in the 1930s. Okay, let's let's start thinking this through. What happens to them in the late 40s? Now, Lucia, we find out in the second series, is politically left of centre. She thinks that the rate should be raised. She's worried about slum clearances. So to a certain extent, she's going to be all right with that. And Map's the opposite. Map is, there's plenty of jobs for everybody. They just don't want to work. So there's a possibility there. If you're doing it now, it's just been such a long time. Well, I think that, that yeah, if, if they're going to be in the 1960s, then it's going to have to be much more about the two of them. It almost could become, uh, not that you'd want it to, but it could become a sort of caricature. Whatever become, happened to Map and Lucci? Well, yeah, it would become a sort of template sitcom situation with the two principal characters at loggerheads. So it's going to be less about the situation around them and more about the fact that it's just effectively Map versus Lucia. It's going to be more along those lines, isn't it? Unless you have a situation and obviously now I'm deviating entirely from presumably deviating entirely from from where the books have taken the characters. Uh, You could have a situation whereby one character has been away like Terry Collier, for example, when character's been away for quite some, some considerable time and then comes back, events would sort of play out whereby you know one character is firmly established and then suddenly there's the outsider coming in to, to shake everything up again. I don't know. I think it'd be interesting. It'd be an interesting one-off little play, but... Um... I don't trust the way television works now to be able to handle a, a series about a bunch of sexless posh people. <laughs> And I really dread one day waking up and finding an announcement there's going to be a new adaptation of Map and Lucia. Bound to happen, isn't and it? It's, Bound to happen. And Stephen Mangan's going to be Georgie. <laughs> I was actually thinking of maybe more James Dreyfus. I don't know. Uh, it's just... Because yeah. <laughs> everybody's going to get de-aged. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's so, bound no, to happen. It, it shouldn't come back because it wouldn't be done right. Which part is Miranda Hart playing? Major Benji. I've just assumed that she's in it. (laughs) Yes, no, absolutely. That is the kind of... (laughs) 
And you know what? Miranda Hart as Elizabeth Mapp would not be the worst thing to happen in human history. I hope that doesn't come across as too sycophantic. No, actually, no. She could do it. She could do something creditable. I'm not going to say that she's going to wipe Prunella Scales off the map. But okay, so who are we going to cast as Lucia? There isn't anybody. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I get the impression, despite there being subsequent novels, it doesn't sound as if there is... Well, there aren't subsequent novels by Benson. The two series of Map and Lucia are the last three novels in so the it doesn't set. Sound, it doesn't sound like there is some great story yet to be told for which we're screaming out for series three or restagings. The only advantage of readapting it is it would be to start right from the beginning and have two series that are just about Lucia and Rism, an adaptation of Miss Map, which is just Map in Tilling, and then but it'd be a heck of a commitment. Whereas the last show that we discussed with Geraldine McEwen, there was quite clearly a need for an additional series that we never got. Yes, yes. If you haven't heard that, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're, we were discussing Mulberry. That's, that's a spoilerific uh, discussion of Mulberry, so yes, if you're indeed, at all yeah. interested in, in investigating Mulberry, just don't even read the DVD box. If you buy the Region 2 DVD, because it just says right there on the back, Mulberry, the bleep of bleep and bleep. What? <laughs> this film is about a man who misses his sledge. <laughs> Uh, spoilers are so difficult to avoid these days for all manner of things. But what's worse is when the spoiler actually comes from the broadcaster themselves. I saw a picture on Twitter. Somebody who'd said, um, the last time I watched a delayed football match on Fox Sports, their little information ticker bar at the bottom of the screen actually showed the final score of the game that they were showing at that particular time. So the guy had taken a photograph and he said, this is how I chose to watch tonight's game delayed. And he got a series of post-it notes and stuck them all over the bottom of the screen. Fantastic. That's one way of doing it. You should not have to... Um, I, I get it if, you, if you're channel surfing and somebody else will come bang in there with the announcement, but not the same bloody channel. Come on. Oh, left hand not knowing what the right hand's doing. But, okay, so to conclude... At the end of our discussion, and I've probably made a nice. massive mistake somewhere along the line. And somebody from the Benson Society has probably downloaded this, and is furious at all the big mistakes I made. Now, again, when you say Benson, Society... yes, I know. I'm sure they're all sick of that joke. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure that the centre of the Benson Society, where they keep the mailing list, probably has a poster on the wall. <laughs> Please do not make jokes about the sitcom. They probably have a form letter they have to send back to people who. Want to know, did he win the governorship or not? Well, see, the thing is, I think that we're in danger of overestimating the importance of this. I don't think that the EF Benson Society gets mistaken for the 30-year-old American sitcom quite as often as we think it does. Perhaps this is just something that we would do, but not necessarily the general public would do. But if you want to do a bit of research, or just like hit Wikipedia, you can visit the towns upon which Rism and Tilling are based. And at one point, there was also a website that was supposed to be run by Lucia. There was supposed to be a Tilling website <laughs> that was done as if it was being run right. on behalf of the characters. I don't know if that's still there. Have you noticed that there's somebody on Twitter who is reenacting Back to the Future via a series of tweets? I heard about it. 
Apparently there are 48 different Twitter accounts, one for each character, and they're all conversing with each other. Well, of course, Mappanucci is denser and more literary. I think you'd have to do Facebook, because uh, the 140 character limit. Hang on a minute, dog with a bone now. Let's check this. Let's hit the Facebook. Well, I'm looking at Facebook now, and there are three Georgie Pilsons on there. <laughs> one of which appears to be affiliated with the government of Canada. But, I get uh, the impression that not just Map and Lucia, but also the others around them, I think there'd be much, much more Facebook people than Twitter, if it had been around. No, I Map, Map would... would be on MySpace. <laughs> <laughs> and the Wises would be on Friendster. <laughs> <laughs> now, who's on Friends Reunited? Oh, good heavens, yes. I, even I'd forgotten that existed. I'm very glad that Friends and, Reunited And uh, Quaint Irene was. would be on Diaspora. Quaint Irene would be a hipster. She would be on whatever everybody else is not using. She would be on Tumblr or something like that. So f- just finally, as we'd like to do, um, I was going to say further viewing, but I guess in this case I would ask you further reading, I suppose. Not necessarily the, the other Map and the Chia books, but if you like that particular style, then are there any other particular offers or particular titles that you'd recommend? You overestimate my intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> now who's that by? <laughs> funny name for a book that's by me (laughs) it's about the cutthroat horrible world of podcasting and how i managed to swing it so that i was on four sitcom clubs running and blocked the other two out we're gonna have Uh, to bring them back in from the cold aren't we well you know funny you say that and and and, you know it's just it's just the way that the cards fell because as you said there's a natural continuation yeah just we just had to do that once we'd done ever decreasing circles it's a little bit, it's just a little step up, a little bit more literary than the average sitcom. So then, of course, we had to go for Mappaluccia, literary source, but also that similar thing of there's a new person in town. That's the point I forgot to make. Olga Bracely is Paul. And the way she's played in the TV series, she comes across more like Rex Tynan. <laughs> They've got Peter Blake as Paul. How's that for a <laughs> casting? <laughs> Curveball. Dear listeners, I know I've got to come overall, so Humphrey there, dear lady. Now, dear listeners, I know what you're thinking. Now, it's been a very, very enjoyable conversation. Thank you, Ocho, for your, your time today. I know what you're thinking. We've gone all sort of highbrow, and where are the chaps going to go next? Are they going to start discussing Alexander Pushkin's dramatic story of obsession, greed, and death in 1700 St. Petersburg, the Queen of Spades? And you'd be right. So, no, of course not. Of course not. Of course not. Could we gone back? This week to 1930s. So next week, how about we go forward? How about we go forward into interplanetary space? We're going to hit rock bottom. We're going to come crashing down to Earth with a FUD. And we are going to be investigating 1978's Comeback Mrs. Noah. Which a lot of people, I think, consider to be Red Dwarf done right. <laughs> Or that's my boy done wrong. <laughs> no, that's my boy done wrong is that's my boy. <laughs> if you have not seen Come Back Mrs. Noah, find it. You'll find it out there if you go looking for it on the internet. You've got to see this show. I'm happy to say that if you look in the right places online, you will actually find all six editions having been recorded on American TV in years gone by. Because, of course, American TV, public access TV, a big supporter of Are You Being Served? Then anything that was vaguely related to that got a show on American TV and come back and Mrs. Noah's. I love that. PBS is supposed to be highfalutin and highbrow in this show. 
are you being served? The other night, this is absolutely true, the other night, 1am, this is a kind of social butterfly, out there, hard partying 24 hour kind of guy that I am, 1am on a Sunday morning the other week. I found myself watching Last of the Summer Wine on PBS from Pennsylvania over the internet. <laughs> that's what technology is for. Uh, and that's what 1am on a Sunday morning was made for. If I'd stayed watching, I would have then watched uh, My Family with Robert Lindsay, but I didn't. So, next time, same place, same bat channel. Come back, Mrs. Noah, and our intention is to have the, the complete sitcom club crew, all four of us, all together. And we've got lots of lovely podcasts lined up from now right through till the end of the year so there'll be no more breaks from now until christmas and we've got all manner of well, little that's delights plan, but, that's know, a that's a plan best yeah, laid plans to, we're bound to balls it up somewhere but yeah that's that's a plan we've got all manner of little delights we've also got a couple of little special quirky little episodes planned for around about christmas time because it'll be our first christmas of course because we only started the sitcom club in april let me just wrap up by saying as i always do but let me just point it out once more that if you've missed any episodes of sitcom club you can find them all by going to sitcomclub.com there you'll see a link either to ourselves on itunes or just a straightforward xml feed that you can put into your preferred podcatcher and all of our previous episodes are on there it needs tweaking a bit because if you press if you go to the archive you have to press something like all casts. If you press the button that says comedy, you get nothing. Right. What to do, right, is if you're using iTunes, just click the iTunes link. Take it to iTunes page, problem solved. No problem there. If you're using anything other than iTunes, right-click on the link that says here's the XML feed and then just go into your preferred podcatcher and then look for the area where it says subscribe to podcast. If you, if you want to do the old-fashioned way, which link. some people do, so sitcomclub.com slash pod, podcast archive, and it says select a category, comedy. Don't click on that. Click on the bit underneath that says all episodes. That's one way of doing it. There are many roads to salvation. And at some point we will be doing Hallelujah with and, and bless me, Father, maybe with Arthur. Yes, Moore. ecclesiastical sitcoms, all in good faith, all in good faith. Oh yes, which... but an ecclesiastical sitcom written by a priest who left the church. Come on, that's got a bit more of a twist to it. Well, yes, yes, indeed. Uh, but I was going to say, and let me just check this. Actually, I'm just going to Google this because it's either just come out or it's just about to come out. The much missed Richard Briars. His first ITV sitcom was All in Good Faith. That's available from Network DVD. Bloody hell, you can get If You See God Tell Them on DVD. I didn't know you could get that. When did that come out? Oh, blimey. Now, that, that's a yeah, that, that's an unsettling show. Marshall and Renwick, four-parter from 1993. Good show, but it's a bit different. And, of course, you can follow us at Sitcom Club on Twitter. You can email us anything that you want to email us, any feedback at all. If you've got any suggestions for shows in the future, anything you want to bring up for future previous business discussions and so on feedback at sitcomclub.com is our email address you can also find this on facebook as well thank you very much indeed for listening to the show today and ocho we will speak again soon au reservoir <laughs> nice thank you indeed for listening and we'll see you again on wait for it sitcom club <laughs>